Hey, a quick note before we jump into this episode. Here at Leading Saints, we are trying to do more How I Lead interviews. Now, what's a How I Lead interview? You've probably heard them before. It's where we find everyday leaders around the world who are serving in one capacity or another, maybe an elders corn president, Relief Society president, the ward mission leader, high counselor, stake presidency counselor, so many different callings of leadership that we have in our faith tradition. And we like to sit down with them one-to-one and just say, how is it that you lead? Give us a few principles, put it into perspective. What's your area like? And these turn into phenomenal resources of best practices. And it's just always fun to hear what the other guy is doing. So if you know somebody who we could interview on the How I Lead segment, regardless of their calling, we would love to connect with them. Go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us the information, maybe get, give them a heads up, and we'd love to reach out to them, connect, and see if we can get them on the Leading Saints podcast for one of our How I Lead segments. Again, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and send us the information. I'm Jill Armijo, and I live in Lehigh, Utah. I'm so grateful for Leading Saints because I have received so much perspective other than where my brain was when I first started listening. I enjoy listening to people who have had different experiences than me and have a gospel perspective and have worked really hard in their situation to make sense of it with relation to being a child of God and being all in in the gospel with each other and and everyone as a family. Welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham, your host. If you're new to Leading Saints, you should know that this is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. And we do that through content creation, like this podcast, our newsletter, online articles at leadingsaints.org, virtual events and live events, and just so many ways. Jump in at leadingsaints.org and make sure you don't miss any of the content. Now, speaking of content, we have a great uh, interview with Patrick Mason, who has written several phenomenal books in his most recent book titled Restoration, God's Call to the 21st Century World. Now, if you're not familiar with Patrick, you should know that he holds the Leonard J. Arrington Chair of Mormon History and Culture at the at Utah State University, where he is an Associate Professor of Religious Studies and History. He earned a BA in History from Brigham Young University, and a PhD in U.S. History from the University of Notre Dame, with an emphasis on American religious history. He is the author or editor of several books and is widely cited by local, national, international media as an authority on Mormon history, culture, and theology. Patrick lives with his wife, Melissa, and four children in Logan, Utah, obviously the home of Utah State University. And just a phenomenal discussion. I I highly recommend you check out his book. It's a quick read and uh, really gives you new perception on the restoration. And in this discussion, I'd encourage you to listen for the parts about uh, how leaders can maybe deal with exclusivism in our religious tradition. You know, that's a bold tradition we have, but maybe how it's uh, holding us back in some, some degree. And then how we can maybe look for deeper truth in our religious experience. Sometimes we get so myopic about uh, the scriptures and about uh, handbooks and these things, which are all good, and I'm never uh, discouraging individuals from those things. But uh, there's other truth, light, and knowledge that has been restored and, and revealed out there that maybe don't come through those traditional means. And then just wrestling with some of these hot topic issues like racism, patriarchy. Patrick Mason t- writes about uh, cultural colonialism 
in the church and really just a fascinating discussion. Not that we arrived on some solid answers per se, nor was that the attempt or the, the purpose of doing this, but these are discussions worth having and really listing out what are we trying to restore or what, what hurdles do we have in our own restoration, both personally and as a church, as an institution, that maybe we could spend more time and more focus on to overcome and help people find a richer experience in the restored gospel. So here's my interview with Professor Patrick Mason, the author of Restoration, God's Call to the 21st Century World. Today, I'm having the opportunity to sit down with Patrick Mason. How are you, Patrick? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, this is great. We've had uh, several discussions in the past, it seems, and uh, you've recently come out with a book called uh, Restoration, God's Call to the 21st Century World. The, man, there's so many thoughts. One is this is a easy, like a quick read, right? Like it's not some heavy academic like manuscript you put together, but you can yeah, fit some, It's less than a hundred pages, small it. pages at that. I love it. <laughs> so, I mean, that's one selling point of the book, but, and also it's just very thoughtful, great perspectives. Maybe just tell us like what inspired this, uh, walking into this concept of, of restoration. What question were you hoping to answer with it? Yeah, for me, it was really two things. So the first thing, uh, so I wrote this last year, 2020, during the pandemic. <laughs> who was, didn't uh, write a book during the pandemic? Who, who didn't, right? <laughs> I mean, well, some people took up cooking or, true, or whatever, right? You know, I, I wrote another book. And, but it was, you know, I was thinking about this stuff because of, it was 2020 was before the pandemic hit. We were supposed to be using it to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the restoration, right? Yeah. Of Joseph Smith going in to the sacred grove and receiving the, the first vision. And so I was thinking a lot about restoration. Obviously, the church was too. The First Presidency and, and 12 Apostles put out a proclamation about the restoration. So it was just kind of in the air. And, and I was thinking about this, this kind of stuff. And, and, and for me, really, the question, even though I'm a historian and I love history, I don't live in history. I live in the present, right? Yeah, sure. And so I'm, while I'm intellectually interested in the, the previous two centuries of the restoration as a person and as a believer, I'm more interested in the next century of the restoration, the one that I live in and that and the, my kids and grandkids will live in. And so, so I was thinking about that. And then the other part of it too was, we've talked on this podcast before about my previous book, Planted, which yeah. was a book addressing faith crisis. And, and that book in a lot of ways was responding to you know a lot of issues, a lot of challenges, a lot of questions that people have. And I think that's really important work. But I also think that for anybody who believes, anybody who cares about religion, we need to put out positive arguments, right? Like, what are the great things uh, about religion? Not just playing defense, you know, dealing with the kind of problems or questions that people have, but what are, you know, why do we believe? What is it about this religion that sort of captures our hearts and minds and, and spirits? And so I wanted this book to at least be, you know, to try and be, you know, some of my answer to that of why I think this religion is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I love how you put it in context at the beginning of the book. Like if you put yourself back in, you know, the 1820s or 1830s as the church is established, like what an exciting time. Like every moment, like Joseph Smith shows up to a meeting, you're thinking, does he got a new revelation? Like what's happening? Right. Like this new doctrines being unveiled and, and rolling forth. And now we get to a point and yeah, we believe in ongoing restoration and, you know, to hear 20 temples announced, it's like, boom, like that's, that's awesome. But nonetheless, we sort of 
maybe minimize our own restoration experience as if that's something that happened. And now we're just sort of, we have the restored gospel and now let's just keep things moving. But we can have a dynamic, exciting restoration time in our own religious experience, right? Totally. And that's that's very much the way that I feel. I, it, it really wasn't until President Nelson's administration, with all of the changes that we've seen over, over the past few years, that I realized, you know, so I'm 44 years old, and, and I realized, you know what, the church, or at least my experience in the church, it's been kind of doing the same thing, you know, for most of my lifetime, right? And that's not a bad thing. I mean, a lot of great things happen, right? I mean, you know, the church is central in terms of forming me as a person and and the, the people that I love and, and things like that. But we'd, I think we'd gotten in a little bit of a habit of largely doing the same things the same way. And I think President Nelson has reminded us that it doesn't have to be that way. Obviously, there are going to be certain things that we hold on to no matter what, right? A certain doctrines, you know, certain things. But that if, you know, the, the world is alive and, and our culture is changing, the world is changing, so our religion has to change with it not just at the level of the church, right? So, so not just President Nelson making changes, but mm-hmm. for each one of us too. And so I think ongoing restoration, yeah, it has to happen at the church level, at the, the global level, but it has to happen at the individual level too. Yeah, I love that because, I mean, obviously the church as an institution and even the, as a religion with doctrines and you know, the restoration of those doctrines is, is powerful, but I think God is just as much interested as restoring the individual as he is restoring the institution of the church, right? Yeah, well, I came to believe in writing this book that God is actually more interested yeah, in yeah, individuals. Cer- certainly, he's interested in the institution, and, and, and we talk about the restored church and, and, and the restoration of all things, right? And we can, we can list a lot of things that God has restored over the past 200 years, and it's a long and impressive list. But actually, the, the main takeaway for me in writing this book, and this is not what I expected when I went into it and started studying the scriptures, started studying the teachings of Joseph Smith and the other prophets, is that when God is talking about restoration, the most important thing that he is restoring is people. Mm-hmm. And he talks about this, there's this great verse at the beginning of section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is one of the greatest sections about the church and priesthood, right? And all these things that we talk about restoring. But in verse two of, of that, and I don't have it right in front of me, so I can't quote it, but it says something like, you know, the, the, you know, the, the rise of the church or the establishment of the church, which is done for the restoration of my people. And Nephi says something similar too in Second Nephi chapter 30. And so, so all of these things that God is doing, priesthood and church and ordinances and, you know, doctrines and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all of it is done in the service of restoring his family restoring his children to wholeness. All these things that are not an end unto unto themselves, they are a means to the end of restoring God's children to wholeness. Yeah. And that's such an exciting message. It's a grace-filled message, right? That that he's after my heart, not necessarily how this organization works. Now, just like, I don't think it's a Latter-day Saint thing, but I think human nature, we simplify things maybe too much or we try and fit them in a certain box so that we can then communicate them to others. And obviously that's, that makes sense. But I remember being that young missionary and, you know, we, I think it was uh, back when we served discussion three, it was the restoration, right? And I remember laying out the different, you know, I had these great visual aids where I showed like the foundation of prophets and apostles and priesthood and ordinances, all these things. And then I'd ask that there'd be this pivotal moment where I'd turn to the investigator after I'd laid all these out where I'd show the old church and the new church and I'd say, what's the difference? And they'd say, 
nothing. And I'd be like, yes, brother, nothing. This is the restored church. Join our team, you know? And obviously that, you know, we're not trying to diminish that doctrine. That's a incredible, you know, these things have been restored, but a stronger message is that of, and Christ is here to restore you. And we, we yeah. bring certain things that we can maybe help you be restored, right? And I think that's where I want to go with our conversation next is like, as leaders are listening to this, they're like, okay, intellectually, I understand the restoration, but how can I pivot to a more of a message of restoring the individual? Any ideas or where do you want to start, start on that? Well, I, I, I think we are getting great leadership from the top that helps us understand that the point of everything we do in the church is to minister to the one. Yeah. Right. And this is a message that we have heard for a long time, but I, th- I think it's it's a matter of sort of getting that into our hearts and into our bones, right? That, yeah, look, I mean, there are a lot of administrative things that have to be done within the church. Uh, every leader within the church knows that, right? I mean, you know, and the church has a vast bureaucracy <laughs> to take care of all the administrative things that have to get done. Those things are really important. But all of those things are meant to provide a structure or a platform for us to effectively minister in a Christ-like way to individuals. And when we lose sight of that, and look, I've been in leadership roles. It is easy to lose sight of it, Christ, because you've got so many boxes to check, right? You've got so many things to do that the list is never done. We have a pretty long handbook, right? And if you look at all the responsibilities the leaders have. So it's easy to get lost in those things. And so it's, it really is about a focus and attitude and orientation where we really focus on that the people right in front of us and that all of these tools that we have, and that's what they are, right? That, you know, all our, our quorums and our groups and the handbook and our Sunday meetings and classes and, and all of these kinds of things. These are tools that a loving God has given us to help us be able to, to minister to individual people, to bring them light and love in their life and, and, and make their lives better. So we, I think it's really just a, a, a matter of focus. And, and again, it's, it's easy for all of us to get lost in that. Yeah. And again, I think it, I think it, didn't you say in the book, like our, we have a handbook that like would put any Fortune 500 companies handbook to shame, like it's just long <laughs> and, and dynamic and in depth. And, and again, this is, we're not about like, we're not trying to throw the handbook under the bus. It's important. It's crucial. But sometimes we naturally, with the overwhelm of these leadership roles, we begin to serve the tools rather than the people. It's like, well, the handbook doesn't say that. And this individual, that's sort of hurting their experience, but we better do what the handbook says and these things. And But to step back and say, no, no, like these are tools to help us help us serve the individual and restore the individual. And that's just a tough dynamic. But I think it's one worth that you do so well in the book of just painting the picture and, and painting the reality that's before us. And yeah, and, and I think we have, we have great teaching along these lines. We just yeah. in general conference, we heard great teaching mm-hmm. along these lines in, in terms of, you know, general authorities talking. I mean, so many stories of, of going to hospital rooms or going to people's homes, you know, and, and all these things, you know, the there are lots of opportunities for training and things like that. But oftentimes it can be done in the car on the way to somebody's home, right? Mm-hmm. Or uh, things like that. Again, COVID complicates all of that. Yeah. You know, we hopefully <laughs> we'll get to to a time where we're sort of back to normal a little bit and visiting in person a little bit more. But I think we just the most effective leaders I've ever had, and of course this goes all the way up to the Savior and the account of his ministry in the New Testament. It is all focused on on people and, and trying to change lives. Yeah, yeah, and you know, there's this feeling like in our culture that. If the church wanted it, or if the church, you know, if, if the church needed to enable more of this focus on the individual, like they would demand it, or there'd be some program. And again, they do. Like general, this recent general conference shows that. But sometimes, as a leader, I can feel like 
you know, I've just got to stick to the handbook. And if the, if the brethren want it, they're going to tell me to do that. And sometimes there's a feeling of like, uh, I don't want to step out of line, right? How would you encourage leaders to join in the restoration in the context that you've described it without feeling like, oh, but what if I'm stepping out of line? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a terrific question because, yeah, we, 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 we do realize that it's not, it's not just my church, right, to do whatever I want with it, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is Jesus Christ Church, and we're all just a part of it, and so, so we don't want to do the wrong thing. So I, I think sometimes we can get a little bit apprehensive. Sometimes we can be fearful, which, of course, is the opposite of faith. And so, you know, I'm, I am so inspired by a lot of priesthood leaders, a lot of Relief Society, young women's primary leaders who absolutely take seriously the calling, the, you know, the fact that they had hands laid on their head and they were given the necessary powers and authorities to do what they were called to do. And to see people you know, exercise priesthood keys if they have them or, or exercise the authority of their office that they have been given, they have been authorized, right? I mean, if, if you're a primary president in a ward, you have been authorized, given divine authority, as President Oaks would say, priesthood authority, mm-hmm. right? Authority straight from God in order to do what is necessary to minister to the children under your care. And that's true of, of every single calling. And I'm so inspired by leaders who take that seriously, and they're not just waiting for you know some kind of directive. You know, working within the confine of the handbook. You know, again, not not going outside that, but saying there is room for tremendous creativity and innovation within this. And a lot of what I talk about in the book is uh, community engagement. Right, I'm a Latter Day Saints. It's amazing what we do within our wards, but then also engaging you know outside our wards and engaging the, the world a little bit more. And there's so many things that we can do to, to partner with social service providers, to partner with local. I mean, you know, and this is the thing people sometimes say, as, as you said, they're a little hesitant to do this. But I don't know what other signals the church needs to give us to be more involved in our communities. I mean, the church is doing this at a global level in terms of not only providing its own humanitarian relief, but partnering with other people to do that. Mm-hmm. And the church isn't always in the lead, right? Sometimes we're just the supporting cast, right? And it's Catholic Relief Services or the Red Cross or, or the UN or UNICEF. And we're just, we're just one of a bunch of people showing up to help. So I think the church is a great model of this. They've created Just Serve, right, to encourage us to be able to participate in and organize, but also, you know, chip in with local things like that. And we have scriptures telling us to be anxiously engaged, right? Not to be passively wait for things, but to be anxiously engaged in a good cause. So, I mean, I I don't know what other authorization we need other than the fact that we've had hands laid on our heads, the fact that we are disciples of Christ that have been called to do good in the world, and that the church is modeling this at the global level and inviting us to do it at the local level. So I think we have all the permission that we need to do good in the world. Yeah. And and as we sort of build this foundation of of the book and whatnot, but tying that back to your your core message of restoration, you know, as far as being anxiously engaged and and thinking outside the box and and just jumping in and reaching out towards community, how's how's that anchor back to your general premise of the book? Yeah. So thanks for that question. So when I did a deep dive into the scriptures and into the teachings, especially of the prophet Joseph Smith on this notion of restoration, I fully expected them to be talking a lot about the restoration of the church, right? Because that's that's sort of, I've grown up talking about that. I built those same models on my mission too, yeah, or drew yeah. those same pictures, right? 
And we can point to scriptures that sort of suggest that, you know, in Ephesians and in other places like that. But the thing that surprised me, and it really did come as a surprise as I was doing research for this book, is that Joseph Smith never once used the term restored church. Like that exact term. Yeah, that blew me away when I read that. Yeah. Whoa. And and when I first discovered, I was like, I've got to be wrong. So I contacted people (laughs) in the church history department, like people doing the Joseph Smith papers, right? Who actually, who really know this stuff. I'm like, am I right about this? And they're like, oh yeah, it turns out you're right. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Same thing. He never used the exact phrase restored gospel. The phrase restored church doesn't appear in general conference until 1918, almost a hundred years after uh, the first vision, right? Now the concept of a restored church, of course, that's not foreign to them. Right. right. You know, and, and the idea that we're restoring primitive Christianity. But, but even so, you know, when Joseph Smith, most of the time in his revelations and the scriptures that came through him in his teachings, most of the time when restoration is being referred to, it's referring to one of two things. It's either referring to Israel, the house of Israel in the last days, or it's referring to the Lamanites as a subset mm-hmm. of the house of Israel. But as people and are for, Yeah, exactly. And yeah. that for me was the key. I was like, oh. When restoration scripture is talking about restoration, it's talking about people. It's talking about, and what do the Lamanites and what do scattered Israel, what do they have in common? Well, these are people who history has not been particularly kind to, right? These are people who were persecuted, who were scattered, who were marginalized, and who, who were deemed as filthy, right? And so when God is talking about restoration, he's talking about his people, his children, and bringing them back into the fold, making them whole, addressing all of those hurts, all of those wrongs, all of those ways in which they've been marginalized, and bringing them in. And so that's why we have all these images of the Good Shepherd and all these other parables, right? The prodigal son, all these other, all these parables that talk about bringing that which is lost or hurt or wounded or marginalized and bringing them into the embrace and into the love of God, and oftentimes through the church. And that to me was the key. That's when it clicked for all of me that, that again, all of these things, they are all in the service of restoring God's people. So when we do, you know, when we work to alleviate poverty, when we work to, you know, to help people with literacy, when we help to, to overcome racism and racial prejudice, as we've heard so much from, from church leaders in, in recent months, all of that is the work of restoration. It's not next to or adjacent the rest to the restoration. That is part of the restoration because it's all part of bringing God's family to wholeness. Yeah. No, I love that so much. Like when you bring it in the context of like restoring individuals, it really shifts the paradigm of the gospel and our approach to it, you know, because naturally it's sort of like the gospel's there either to restore people or to conform them to a model that, and it's easy to sort of default to that conforming of like, well, you know, if you're engaged in the gospel, you know, you should be doing these things and you should probably start dressing a certain way and acting a certain way and and doing certain things. But to to step back and say, no, 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 like God is engaged with their heart to restore them. And and my mind just goes to a friend who joined the church recently. And it has been just an interesting journey for him. And I've recently talked to him and he's just sort of, I can, from my perspective, seems like he's sort of stepping away. Like he's taking steps back where I'm thinking, no, 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 like don't do that. Like here, just do these things. But instead I step back and think, wow, like God is on a journey with him and he's restoring that individual in a way that I would have never guessed. You know, that's not the the game plan I would have written out, but, and just having faith in his restoration journey, knowing that at some point, yeah, he'll bring him back to some of these more 
traditional steps that maybe we we see, but just to have faith in that restoration journey rather than seeing it as a, a journey of conformity. And and I think we each, especially as leaders, we need to do the work of thinking and pondering and meditating on what it is about these things that we do that will actually bring people wholeness, right? Mm-hmm. What is it about the Book of Mormon? So yeah, we want people to read the Book of Mormon, but why? We want people to attend church, but why? We want people to pay tithing and to obey the word of wisdom, but why? We know, I think we've gotten as a church to the point where we, could, where we can all agree that it's not just about checking a box, right? Right. And so, but we have to, in our own minds and hearts, we have to settle on the answer of what is it about the word of wisdom that is going to bring people to wholeness? Maybe that's an easy one, right? In terms mm-hmm. of avoiding or overcoming addiction and other things like that. But what is it about reading the Book of Mormon? Again, it's not just to do it every day so that you can say you did it, right? And it's not just to gain sort of scripture mastery that you can memorize some things or that you can beat somebody in a doctrinal battle, right? <laughs> I mean, that, that was the trap I fell into as a missionary <laughs> too often, right? But no, what is it? So if I were a missionary again, right? Yeah, I would put the Book of Mormon in people's hands and I would invite them to, to read Moroni 10 and, and to pray about it. But more than that, I would say, this is how this book has changed my life. This is how this book, here's a, here's a few scriptures that like literally filled a hole in my heart or in my spirit. This is how this book has spoken to me and made me a more whole person. And I think it could do the same thing for you. Maybe it's going to be different passages. It probably will be, right? But I can guarantee you this book is going to fill a hole in your heart. That's a, and, and the coming to church and being part of our community. Again, it's not just growing the size of it. It's, it's not so that we can get more members of the club. It's so that we can get people to come in because we think that participating in a congregational mode of religious worship, we think that it's going to restore something in you and that you're going to be part of the restoration of somebody else's heart and soul as well. And that's a pretty cool thing. Yeah, it is a cool thing. Maybe this is a good good place to pivot to this concept. You talk about relativism and exclusivism. Those seem like words I generally only use in an academic setting, which I'm rarely (laughs) in. So break that down for us. What what do we understand about relativism and exclusivism? Yeah, I mean, yeah, these are fancy words, but they they just capture things that are pretty common ideas. So you know, and when we think about different religions, because look, we all know that there's lots of religions out there, right? We can't pretend that ours is the only religion. And in fact, we constitute 0.2% of the world population. So, so, you know, when we think about other religions, oftentimes people think about it in one of two ways. And, and yeah, the fancy words are kind of exclusivism and relativism. So exclusivism means that if one thing is true, then something else that is different can't be true. Hmm. Right. So if vanilla is the true flavor of ice cream, chocolate can't be because chocolate is different. Right. Right. Whereas relativism says, you know what, with religion, yeah, they all look kind of different and people kind of do different things and they kind of believe different things. But actually, the image that's oftentimes used is it's all just different paths up the same mountain. Right. And when we get to the top of the mountain, we're all going to be at the same place. And we just got there through different ways. Right. And the higher you go up the mountain, the more similar it is. Right. And that's like oh, chocolate, vanilla, strawberry. I mean, it's all good. Right. That there's no true flavor of ice cream. It's, it's, it's all good. It's just personal preference. Right. And, you know, the problem, you know, exclusivism makes a lot of sense, you know, in, in terms of, you know, to give you the kind of confidence that what you've chosen is true, right? And is yeah. right. And, and that's, that's what gives you the, the, the kind of energy to go out and, and confidently testify of these things. But it, but it oftentimes doesn't make for very good relationships with your neighbors, right? If you think your neighbors are absolutely wrong 
And unless they believe and do exactly the way that you believe and do, that something bad is going to happen to them, right? Whereas relativism, I mean, that just doesn't resonate either because those of us who are in particular religions, we know that they're not all the same, right? Hinduism and Catholicism and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and Islam, they're not the same. They just aren't. And their goals aren't the same. I mean, if you really sit down and talk to a Hindu, I mean, we can all talk about how we have common ethics, right? I mean, you know, the golden rule is common to all religions. And and so there are some things that we share. Everybody loves their families, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But when you really talk to a Muslim or you really talk to a Hindu, they don't like the end, the goal, you know, where we're getting to is not the same as it is for a Latter-day Saint. So relativism just doesn't work either. So so for me, neither of these two frameworks is fully satisfactory. Yeah. And so, and as a traditional Latter-day Saint, we, I mean, we generally kind of go to that exclusivism realm right. when we say things like we're the one and true church and, and you know, this is where it's got to be to happen, you know, for, for that restoration to happen. But it, you also make the point that, you know, th- this restoration is happening for everybody and, and regardless of what their faith tradition is, that we don't own all the rights to the restoration concept. God is always engaged in the hearts of men, regardless of where they may be, right? But we maybe just yeah. own a certain part of that restoration thing. Like once that individual is ready for those sanctifying covenants, like, yeah, we we sort of have those keys, right? And we're happy to help you with that, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, I, I think we have to really struggle and wrestle with what is God doing among the other 99.8% of his children, mm-hmm. right? And I've got to think, <laughs> in fact, I know that God is working among them as well. And, and in fact, this is exactly what Latter-day Saint teaching is. I mean, we have a first presidency statement from 1978. Uh, we don't quote it nearly enough. It's called God's Love for All Mankind, in which it, it talks about how God inspired Muhammad and Confucius and Plato and Aristotle, right? So both religious leaders and philosophers. It says in all nations around the world in order to enlighten and you know bring light to different nations and different cultures. We have scriptures. The Book of Mormon is, is actually one of the things it testifies most powerfully of is the idea that God speaks to all nations, right? And in fact, at some point, we believe we're going to discover the sacred writings, the inspired writings of other people where God has inspired other people and they'll mm-hmm. have their records and they will join with the Book of Mormon and the Bible, right? And maybe those records already exist. Maybe they're yet to be written. We don't know, right? And so God is doing work among all his children. That is actually part of the teaching of the Latter-day Saints. And so they're not just passively waiting for us to do their ordinances for them when they die. I mean, God is working among them right now, always has been. And so this is what I call particularism, which again, is, is, doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. But this <laughs> idea that God gives specific gifts, particular gifts to different people, not only to individuals, but to groups, to nations, to cultures, even religions. And he's given us great gifts and really important things to do, right? He's given us the Book of Mormon and Restoration Scripture. He's given us prophets and apostles. He's given us ordinances and the keys to do those ordinances for the whole human family, by the way, not just some of them. Right. And these are specific things that Latter-day Saints have been called to do, but he's doing work in other places too and asking other cultures and groups and nations and individuals to do good work at the same time. Yeah. And here's like the, the friction point for a lot of leaders is that in their own journey of restoration, you know, especially being part of the restored gospel as we, we term it today, that it's hard to look towards those other things because we have the standard works. We have 
you know, scripture, which is, we believe is the word of God. And so to turn to those, you almost feel like it's sort of the, uh, you know, the, I don't know how I would turn it, but almost like I'm turning away from, you know, I'm sort of married to the scripture. And if I turn away and read another book for, for higher light and knowledge, like I'm, I'm doing it wrong. And so what advice would you give to leaders or really the Orthodox Latter-day Saints who they want to understand this greater light and knowledge, but they sort of feel like, well, that should always come from the scriptures. Right. No, it, it's a great question. It's an important question. I think one thing to realize is the scriptures point us outside of themselves as well. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe the most uh, famous passage along these lines is in section 88, of Revelation to the Saints, where God tells Joseph Smith and the early elders of the church to seek wisdom out of the best books. Right? And mm-hmm. clearly in context, he's not just talking about the scriptures because he's, he's telling them to study history and geography and politics and all these kinds of things so that they can be better ministers of the gospel. So the scriptures themselves point people out of the scriptures. Nice. And in fact, there's, the, there's this great revelation where Joseph Smith wants to read the, the Apocrypha. You know, Catholic Bibles have a whole bunch of other books that Protestant Bibles don't, and they're called the Apocrypha. And Joseph Smith wanted to know, is it okay for me to read these other books, right? Uh, They're not part of the King James Bible. And the revelation that he got said, yeah, go ahead and read them. You've been given the Holy Spirit to discern what's true and what's what's error, right? And God specifically says, there's much that is in there that is true. There's also things that are error there, and you have the Holy Spirit. So you figure it out. Yeah. And, and, and this, for me, this is so liberating. It's so exciting that, of course, the scriptures are the standard works, right? The scriptures, the teachings of the prophets, and the living prophets and apostles and the Holy Ghost. This is where authority comes from. This is where we know what is true. But Joseph Smith didn't believe that truth was just limited to those, those things. Brigham Young didn't believe that truth was limited to just those things. Prophets and apostles throughout the Restoration. I mean, if, if you look at general conference talks, they're quoting Shakespeare, they're quoting poetry, they're quoting studies by academics, right? They are clearly signaling to us that there's a lot of truth to be found outside. And again, we weigh it by what we know from the standard works and the teachings of the prophets and the Holy Spirit. But we have been given the gift of discernment. It's one of the great gifts that we have. So the world is sort of our playground. I mean, I, for me, this is just so liberating that that I can read, I can explore, I can talk with people, I can talk with my neighbors and learn everything. I can ask questions. And then I have the Holy Spirit to help me discern what is true and what isn't. Yeah. And in a leadership context, this is so encouraging because I remember you know, being that bishop who sort of had a side hobby of really being interested in organizational behavior. And I'll read yeah. different studies or books and I'm just like, holy moly, like this, I could apply this so many ways, you know, in my leadership role, but I sort of felt like, I don't know, am I supposed to do that, right? And that's sort Is that of- okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and even bringing up, you know, to members of the word council and, you know, check this out, look what they're discovering out there. And, but traditionally, that sort of feels feels off at times. And we have this this trump card, I, I, I call it, where uh, these spiritual trump cards from time to time. And there's a whole list of them. Anthony Swick turned me on to this concept. But one of these trump cards with truth is like, oh, well, that, you see, that is, uh, that's philosophies of men mingled with scripture. And so just, you know, be a little careful there because you don't want to be led astray. And I sort of just reject that premise of saying like, I'm not saying this is scripture or this research wasn't flawed in some way, but it has helped right. me and inspired me to lead in a different way or to think in a different way because I now have this information. Well, that's exactly right. One, one of the great quotes from Brigham Young, and not everything that Brigham Young said was always great, 
because he's fallible just like the rest of us. But he has this great quote from 1859 where he says, it's now our duty and calling to gather up every item of truth, whether the infidels, which was the term at the time for atheists, whether they have it or the Universalists or the Church of Rome, Roman Catholics or the Methodists or the Quakers or Shakers or the Presbyterians or the Baptists, every one of them have more or less truth. And then he goes on to say, yes to the sciences of the day, yes to the philosophy in every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, no matter how many errors they have, they have a great many truths. And that is just, I mean, that is so liberating, right? And he's talking about, so not only other religious truth, right? But he's saying even atheists have truth. And he's saying scientists have truth and philosophers have truth. So yes, we do have warnings about the philosophies of men, right? But again, this is this is what we have discernment for. This is precisely why God has given us these standards and these gifts in order to to, you know, to disaggregate the truth from the error. But he invites us, you know, lay hold upon every good thing, yeah. right? Every good thing, not yeah. just some good things. I love that so much. And I'm sure behind you, I'm looking at several books. I'm sure you have uh, several non-Latter-day Saint authors there that have inspired you in so many ways. I know I have my own, you know, favorite Christian authors who yep. maybe even are a little bitter towards the Latter-day, you know, our Latter-day Saint <laughs> experience, but I just love them so much and I could read and read and read and they inspire me and and they push me back into the scriptures. They reinvigorate me into the Latter-day Saint traditions that I've already put in place. They don't discourage me or, you know, and so again, it's, like you said, it's liberating. It's exciting to say I can reach and seek for different truth that's out there and it's all part of this restoration experience. And that's the cool thing about our lay leadership too, is that we don't have a whole bunch of bishops and Relief Society presidents and stake presidents who have all gone to seminary and read the same books and learned the same things, right? right? I mean, you know, seminary, not in our context, but, um, but actually they're coming from every possible background, right? And so as a leader of the church, like, you know stuff, right? You just know stuff from your walk in the world, which is different than somebody else's walk in the world, right? And you majored in something else in college, or maybe you didn't go to college at all, right? And so all of that stuff, you know, whether it's organizational behavior and, you know, leadership theories or whatever it is that you've learned, that's all good stuff. Bring the best of it and apply it to this work of restoration. Yeah. Love that. Uh, Great, uh, great concept. And and maybe just uh, from, you know, just from your experience, you know, writing and planted about, you know, faith journeys and faith transitions and doubt and so forth. This concept of, you know, you say 0.2% of the world is a Latter-day Saint and that this has really either been a, a catalyst to somebody's doubt or their way out of the church or leaving the gospel. So if someone came to you or what advice would you have for bishops who, when people come to them and say, yeah, but if this is the restored church and only 0.2% are actually members, like, what are some thoughts to maybe respond to that that concern? Yeah, look, I I grew up in a church that was addicted to growth, the, the <laughs> church of the 1980s, 1990s, yeah. the 2000s, right? We were so infatuated with these numbers that were read, you know, every April general conference and these percentages and the growth and the charts and the graphs. You know, we had one non-LDS, one of the most famous non-LDS sociologists of religion predict that Mormonism was going to have 250 billion members, or not, not 250 billion, 250 million, a quarter of a billion members uh-huh. during this century, even as early as 2050, right? I mean, we loved that stuff. And that was how, that was part of what 
told us that the church was true yeah. because it was growing so fast, the fastest growing in the world, the fastest growing religion in the world, we, we oftentimes said. And look, those the church is still growing both through converts and, and through natural increase, um, but not nearly at the same rates that it was. And I think we're, I think now we're having a little different perspective, maybe a little more humility. And we go back, and when I go back into the scriptures, yeah, there, there are some things that, that talk about the growth of the kingdom, right? And, you know, the, the prophecy from Daniel about the stone cut out of the mountains and so forth. And we talk about these kinds of things that seem very impressive. But when you go back, like Nephi, when he had his vision of the church of God in the last days, he said that their dominions would be small. He says they'd be scattered around the world but that their dominions would be small. He was not imagining a church that with 250 million members, right? <laughs> that became a dominant force. That's not what Nephi saw in vision. And think, I think most of all about what the Savior himself said, that when he used metaphors to describe his followers, and I think it applied then and it applies now, the metaphors he used were light, yeast, and salt. These are all tiny things tiny, tiny things, right? Particles of light, right? Or, you know, grains of, of salt or a little bit of yeast. They are in, you know, in terms of think about just yeast, right? It's a tiny, tiny percentage of what goes into a loaf of bread. I don't know, maybe around 0.2%. Yeah. Um, and it's by itself, it, you know, it's just yeast, right? But when you mix it in with the loaf, the whole point of the yeast is it's meant to transform the rest. Yeah, makes all the and difference. So it remains yeah. really small, but it's supposed to have this transformative, this, it's, it's supposed to have a catalyst effect on the rest of the ingredients. And the same thing with salt, right? I mean, put too much salt on, I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's not good. And so you only need a dash of salt, a pinch of salt to totally transform a dish. That seems to be what Jesus keeps coming back to, right? It's not the size. It's not about critical mass in terms of what he calls his followers towards. Of course, we want more people because we think there are blessings of the gospel. We think their lives will be better when they come to the church and enjoy its blessings. But Jesus tells us not to be intimidated by smallness. In fact, to think that maybe that our calling is to have a transformative effect, not a dominating effect on the world. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. I love that. I want to move on. In chapter five, you talk about various uh, topics as in the context of uh, the restoration because, and I think you make this point throughout the book, is that obviously things that Joseph Smith, Brigham Young were dealing with, you know, the day-to-day -day topics or the economic concerns or whatever it is, were much different than, than today. But, you know, a lot of the scripture was written there. And so they're generally in that context. And so part of the restoration is to recognize these new dynamics, these new issues or problems and, and see them as part of the restoration as we combat them or, or overcome them. Right. And is that maybe in my articulate that effectively how you want it? <laughs> yeah, that, no, that's exactly right. That history is different than the present. And even 200 years ago, the, the world that Joseph Smith and Brigham Young lived in, the, the, the world that the Doctrine and Covenants, most of the sections emerged in is, is actually quite different than ours. And certainly the world of the Bible or the Book of Mormon emerged in, right? And so if we believe in an ongoing restoration, if we really believe in the ninth article of faith, right, that God has revealed things in the past, he reveals things to us now, and he has a lot of things to tell us in the future, then we know that this project isn't finished and we know that this project is not perfect. We know that we don't live in Zion or, or at best we live in aspirational Zion, that Zion is not perfected yet. 
in fact, one of the things that the Book of Mormon warns us against is is being too content and actually saying that all is well in Zion, hmm. because that's actually one of the tools of the adversary, because it makes us complacent and it keeps us from continuing to try and become more perfected in Christ. And so, so I identify a, a number of things in that chapter, and somebody else's list might be different than my list. That's totally fine. But of things that we've picked up along the way that I think weren't necessary or important or true parts of the original restoration, but that it's just natural living in this world that, that you pick up stuff along the way. We all do it in our individual lives, right? Yeah, and yeah. that's what repentance is for, is to be self-aware to look at the at the baggage we've picked up, to look at the kind of barnacles that that have attached themselves to us spiritually along the way, and then the gift of repentance is that we can get rid of that stuff. We don't have to be paralyzed by it. And so I identify a, a handful of things. I mean, one of the things I talk about is racism. Mm-hmm. That that we know that this is something that the church struggled with for 126 years. We had a priesthood temple ban on people of African descent, right? And so 1978, that revelation was a really important start in terms of shedding that extra baggage, getting rid of those barnacles. But those have long-lasting effects, and we know that, and we're hearing that a lot from this first presidency in terms of challenging members to get rid of that baggage once and for all so that we can really move on with the work of Zion. So this is always going to be true. And so again, I have my list of things that, that I think that, that we've picked up and, and that we need to attend to. But we just, the basic principle, I hope, resonates for everybody that we can't just be content, not only in our individual lives, but as a collective church. We also always have to be looking at the things that we need to repent of so that we can move forward. Yeah. And, and I appreciate you putting in the context of, you know, this is your list. And, you know, a lot of these things I'd probably include on my list as well. And, and, and just a tease for, for the book, I should go check it out. The, the things that the main ones that you mentioned were racism, patriarchy, cultural colonialism inequality of wealth and fundamentalism. And, and maybe we'll, we'll touch on some of those, um, but it'd be interesting like for a leader to say, you know, what's on your list? Like what are the common things, the threats, the the dynamics that are, that your members are really wrestling with that they need some help with? And in the context, you know, shifting this to a leadership context, I'm interested in this discussion because a lot of these things, individuals turn towards leaders and say, okay, now what are you going to do about it? And the leader <laughs> says, I'm late for a meeting. I got to go. Sorry. Like, you know, it's like, the, like, for example, and this is an interesting dynamic in itself, like the general authorities of our church, the brethren are really in a tough position because they are general authorities. They are leading the church generally, and it's a huge international church. And so I don't fault them. And I have so much empathy for anything they say, even when I'm like, oh, I don't, I'm, I don't really agree with that or I'm a little uncomfortable with it or whatever. I'm thinking, well, listen, this is a general leader and they can't give you the five-step plan of how to do this or that. And so, for example, when President Nielsen a conference ago or so stood and said, you know, we should lead the way out against racism. Like, I'm like, hurrah, like, here we go. Yes. You know, and, but at the same time, I felt like he was standing saying, we should end world hunger. Thank you. Have a good evening. And then I'm just like, (laughs) okay, well, wait a second. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? And then everybody turns towards the leaders or to your your favorite leadership podcast says, okay, go ahead and create that content. And I'm thinking, I don't know how to solve world hunger. Like, I'm not <laughs> racist. You know, it, it's just, it becomes very difficult when it hits that local church level. Then it's like, yep. boom, because that's where the application happens. And so 
as we create this list, like I'm just curious, like what encouragement you have for those leaders who are trying to combat these things, but it's like, I don't, I don't know what to do. And and there, and there's never like a right or wrong answer. And then half the world hates you. And the other yeah. is, you know, anyways, any, any, what thoughts come to mind? I know there's no like clear answer here, but yeah, right. Well, I, it's, it's the million dollar question is such a great question. I think a couple of things. So first of all is to realize that local leaders are not general leaders in the sense that, and we talk about all the time in the sense that like, you know, a bishop or a, a young women's president can't speak for the whole church, right? right? Yeah. But it also means they don't have the burden of the whole church yes. or the burden of the whole world yeah. the way that a general authority does. Instead, their burden is much more concentrated and much more localized, right? They've been called to provide local leadership for a local group of saints and the local community within their boundaries or, or nearby. And that. So it, that can be restricting in a way, but it actually hopefully should be empowering and it should be liberating. Like, like I don't have to bear the whole weight of the world on my <laughs> shoulders as a Relief Society president, right? It's enough to bear the weight of what's going on in, in your ward boundaries, right? And so I think then once you realize that, then you lean into that. And the other principle is that you can't run faster than we have strength, right? And that there is a kind of grace upon grace, line upon line, right? None of us can, you know, the, the old saying, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? Mm-hmm. You can't swallow the whole thing at once. And so, so I think my advice would be lean into your inspiration, which means exactly what you just mentioned, which means listening to people, right? Looking around, what needs to be done in your ward? And it might be different. It's going to be very different than a ward across the world, but it might even be different than the ward next to you or the stake next to you. And that's okay. Because again, you've had hands laid on your head. You've got keys or have authority to minister to the people in your ward or stake boundary. And so lean into that inspiration and say, what can we do? We can't do it all, not all at once. But what is the one thing that God wants us to do among our people in our ward, in our stake, in our class, in our quorum right now? Yeah. And and eat that elephant one bite at a time. But don't so don't be so paralyzed by the whole elephant that you don't even start and take the first bite. Right. Right. I think that happens a lot too. It's like I can't solve all the world's problems, so I'm just gonna sit and watch Netflix. Right. <laughs> no, I mean God wants us to be doing stuff. Yeah. Uh, but he doesn't ask us to do he doesn't ask all of us to do everything all at once. Yeah. You know, and th- and this that's awesome advice and, and really helpful to just, you know, we got to be prayerful, but just being engaged and stepping back and seeing where I can. And, and sometimes I wonder that, especially in this polarized world with um, so much happening, it's like, um, you know, talking, <laughs> why am I stepping into this bear trap? But here we go. Uh, you know, in the context of racism, right? Like being in the Salt Lake area, obviously there's not a ton of diversity. Right. And is it my fault that it's not a ton of diversity? No. I mean, I just I was born here. It's just where I am. Right. But then, then, but then there's this feeling of like, well, we got to make sure there's diversity in the church. And there's that one African, African-American brother that we love and let's make sure he's in the bishopric or, you know, like, and then he's doomed to bishoprics so that the rest is where, where we're just trying to like show that we're, we're, and if we don't do that, then something's wrong. And so it just creates this uh, paradox that leaders find themselves in where it's like, I, and again, you know, with leadership, sometimes you just have to say, I know I'm trying. I know not everybody in my ward agrees how I'm trying, but I'm trying. And here I go. Right. Any any thoughts to that with as far as like some of these, especially in Utah, when very, yeah. you know, 
very, uh, I don't know what the word would be, but there's not a lot of diverse, diversity here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of wards because the, um, uh, because the geographic boundaries are relatively small, right? Exactly. Yeah. There, there is a lot of homogeneity, at least, I mean, there's never really homogeneity, right? Within mm-hmm. those boundaries, people are struggling with lots of different stuff. Exactly. But in terms of the outward visible things, you know, race and class and, and you know, socioeconomic status, that there's oftentimes a high degree of homogeneity in a lot of Utah congregations. For me, I'd say a couple of different things. One is that, yeah, if you've got that one African-American family or one Latino family in your ward, <laughs> um, rather than trying to figure out all of it yourself, why don't you bring them into the office and say, here's what I'm struggling with, yeah. Sister Smith, mm-hmm. right? I mean, thank you for being – We're you're such a valuable member of the ward. And here's what I'm thinking, right? I, I, I want to make sure that I, I include you and that your experiences, you know, I want to make sure that this is a safe place for you when you come to church, right? Tell me what I can do better. Tell us what we can do better. But also don't expect that Sister Smith has to have all the answers for the whole ward or the whole church, right? I mean, and, and so so make it a partnership and make it a, a conversation with those folks. And, and I think they'll, they'll appreciate that. The other thing is that even if some of this diversity doesn't occur exactly within our ward boundaries, it's not too far away. Right. Mm-hmm. Even if you live on the east side of Salt Lake or me, you know, kind of the east bench of Logan or whatever, it's not very many miles away. Mm-hmm. And a phone call to a city council member, right? A phone call to the local United Way or, or some other, you know, you know, organization that does community work will help you realize that not very many miles away, there are a lot of needs, even if they're not exactly within your word boundary. And that's okay. We can do good outside our word boundaries too when necessary. So again, it just requires a little bit more moral imagination, being a little bit more proactive in order to address some of these things. Yeah. And you know, then the temptation is with some of these heavy topics, you know, racism, patriarchy, you know, inequality of wealth. I naturally just want to, and I feel other leaders feel like, can feel like this, it's like, I don't necessarily know how to approach that. But if I default to simply teaching Christ-like principles and Christ-like love and his doctrines, like all of that should come out in the wash. Like it's, you know, if, if we teach people to be more Christ-like, more likely they'll be less racist <laughs> or yeah. they'll, they'll get rid of racism. But is that, is there any, is that a flawed approach uh, from? No, I don't think it's a flawed approach. I, I think that's where we have to start, right? Yeah. Within the church, we start with the doctrine. Mm-hmm. And so for me, even in that section on racism, I mean, I start from the doctrine laid out in the Book of Mormon that all are alike unto God, black and white. And I'm sure that extends to, to every other race as well. Mm-hmm. And that's where we start. And we have a responsibility as leaders, not just an opportunity, but a responsibility to teach the doctrine. And that is the doctrine. So, so yeah. we have to start from there. And, and in fact, sometimes we say, oh, these are controversial topics. I don't want to talk about it. Well, if you're not teaching in the world that we live in today, Mm-hmm. Right. If you're not teaching that doctrine in your ward, then then something is is missing. Right. We're not speaking to the needs of the world. I mean, the members of your ward are thinking about it. They're watching TV too, or they're they're looking on Facebook and Twitter. They see it. And so, I think one of the one of the biggest problems we have in our church is that sometimes we are we are scared to say anything. And I don't want us diving into every political issue, and I don't want my bishop giving a political sermon, right? And we um, learned more about that this uh, this past exactly, month. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> right? So it is hard. 
I'm not saying it's easy, but we um, we have a responsibility to teach the doctrine. And then it's okay as a leader to say, look, here's the doctrine, all alike unto God, black or white. I'm watching this stuff on TV. I'm troubled in my soul. I'm listening to what President Nelson is saying. I don't have all the answers. I, I'm, I'm still learning myself. Look, I'm just Joe the plumber or whatever you are as, as a bishop, right? I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just Steve the insurance agent, right? Or whatever. I'm still figuring this stuff out myself, but I know what the doctrine is. And let's start there and let's listen to each other. And if people have different points of view, that's okay. Let's listen and learn from, from one another. That's what Christ calls us to do. That's why he puts us in wards so that we can learn from one another. Yeah. And so to kind of invite the conversation, to do it in a way that is going to be Christ-like, to put forward the Christian principles of love and of hope and of faith and of forgiveness, all these kinds of things, and then to teach people to listen to one another. That's pretty good leadership right there. Yeah. Because, the, because the world doesn't offer a lot of that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. This is one place I am convinced the Latter-day Saints, we've been given a gift of the ward. We cannot squander that gift. Yeah. And so... So the world doesn't offer this. The world does not offer this kind of peace, this kind of place to listen to and learn to love and forgive people who are different from you. The world is pulling us in every other direction. And the the church really, there are fewer and fewer places in our society, and the church is one of them, where we can learn to love people who are different than us. Yeah, I love that. Awesome. And I appreciate you letting me uh, explore that. I probably said some things at the end of a lot of emails, but whatever, that's fine. Uh (laughs) The two of these topics that I want to maybe spend a little more time with is is cultural colonialism and fundamentalism. You know, how would you describe cultural colonialism? I think people know what it is, but maybe they haven't used it in that term. Yeah, sure. Again, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm an academic, so I can't You're help fine. it. I'm You're sorry. Good. I mean, yeah. This is this is the idea, it, kind of the white man's burden. This is mostly mostly in missionary work, right? The idea that that, that we go out, you know, from Logan, Utah, or Salt Lake, or whatever, and you get called on. A mission to the Amazon jungle or somewhere else. And, and you, you're not only teaching the pure principles of the gospel, but you're pretty sure you have it all figured out in terms of the way that stuff is, is supposed uh-huh. to work, right? Yeah. And actually, we, we heard some, was it Elder Renlund who talked about this? Or one of the apostles talked about this in general conference. I can't remember exactly. But this, you know, this, this notion that sometimes we take things out into the world, but we, we do it in a packaging that has more to do with American culture than it has to do with with the gospel. And sometimes we can be pretty heavy-handed mm-hmm. in, in the way that we do that and not necessarily listen to other people. So a lot of that happens in a missionary context, but it can happen locally too, especially as, as new people come into the church, as new converts come into the church. We can be a little bit heavy-handed in terms of imposing not just you know true doctrine and ordinances and the things that the church has been tasked to steward, but a kind of cultural way of doing things yeah. that, that, that we can sometimes be less than gentle in imposing yeah. on people. And, and we've heard this a, a lot from General Conference. We just need to separate the culture from the doctrine. It's easier said than done, yeah. to be sure, but we just need to be conscious about it and try to empower people to bring their gifts. The whole point, I mean, God tells us this. This is the metaphor of the body of Christ that, that Paul uses, is that all the body parts matter, right? And they all have different gifts and they all have different things. So the problem is the church, I mean, let's just say we have a whole bunch of hands, right? You know, that work really well. They're really effective hands. And sometimes when somebody comes into the church and they are an ankle or they're an elbow or they're an ear, we want them to be hands, right? Yeah. And we, we sort of force some things on them rather than saying, oh, wait a minute 
you've got some different gifts. You've got some different things that God has given you that you can add. And in fact, our congregation is going to be richer because of what you bring, precisely because it's not the same as all these other people who were raised the same way, et cetera. Yeah. And a lot of times they're, they're little things, you know, like white shirts or how, what hymns are sung and what reverence means and these types of things where, and it's sort of the curse of correlation, right? In our attempt yeah. to correlate all the doctrine, we said, well, why don't we just correlate everything, everything. including, <laughs> including what we wear and the hymns we, we sing and how, you know, and that's sort of the, again, the curse of correlation, but we have just this vast international church. And so it's like, well, just let's hit copy and paste a bunch of times and, and it, it works here, it must work there. But then these unintended consequences come from it, right? Well, and of um, course, it's a blessing and a curse, right? Yeah, exactly. Because the blessing yes, yes. is is that, that we strive for unity. Yeah. And it is a beautiful thing. I mean, as I watched General Conference and heard these choirs from all over the world singing yeah. the same hymns that I sing, right? That is a beautiful thing. That's a powerful thing that talks about the unity of the children of God that the restoration is trying to bring about. So it's, yeah, how do you, you know, how do you disentangle? It's, it's not easy. Yeah. But again, a lot of these things that I listen in the book, I don't have the answers for. Right. But I just think we, we can't lose sight of them. We have to be conscious of them and we have to wrestle with them together. Yeah. And I think just, you know, discussions like this and other resources out there, like, I think we're getting to a place where we're more and more comfortable with it. But it's, you know, it's interesting because I asked myself, like, if I got a call from somebody that elder so-and-so, doesn't matter who, whoever has elder, you know, general authority wants to meet with me, like, you couldn't pay me not to wear a white shirt and a suit. Like, right. I'm, right. I'm so conditioned that even now I'm not in any formal leadership position. I wear a white shirt and a suit to church, you know, when, when we go to church, right? And so, again, and I, and I we can maybe create these practices and maybe not like projecting that on others. If the deacon shows up with a blue shirt, you know, right. roll with it. Don't feel like you have to tell him to go sit down and those types of things. But it is interesting. And, and, and I kind of, I don't mean to put you in a position like, okay, you, you laid out these topics, Patrick, I want answers. Like, right. how do we do this? Cause these are tough, but it's worth making that list and, and then seeing and seeking higher revelation to see if maybe there are some ideas of diminishing this list more and more and, and, finding deeper restoration in it all, right? Yeah. And then lastly, there's fundamentalism because I, this one stood out to me because I feel like leaders sometimes are the greatest violators of fundamentalism where, and I don't know how you'd, well, how would you quickly define fundamentalism in, in the context of, of your book? Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm referred to it in, in just the kind of general term, general way we do with somebody who's like really hardcore, you know, everything is black and white. I mean, very little flexibility on anything. and they have all the answers, yeah. right? And if you don't line up with them 100%, then wherever you don't line up, you're wrong. Yeah. All right. There cannot be any diversity of views or, or anything like that. And you're right. We, we see this a lot in leadership. We've seen it in general leadership over the decades. We've seen it in local leadership. I think we've all seen this. And again, it's not you know, to be firm in your convictions is not necessarily a bad thing, right? You're, you're not going to get me to hedge on whether there's a God in heaven or whether Jesus is my savior, yeah. right? So there, there are certain things that we, we have to, you know, have our feet firmly planted, right? Stand as a witness of God at all times, in all places, in all things. But that's different than what I'm talking about as, as fundamentalism with the kind of rigidity that comes mm -hmm. with that, the kind of intolerance, the inflexibility, the judgmentalism the condescension that comes towards anybody who has who has different ideas. But rather than 
sort of saying, oh, wow, that's different than my understanding. Tell me more about that. And let's let's kind of have a conversation about this and let's figure this out together. And I mean, the opposite of fundamentalism is humility, right? <laughs> fundamentalism yeah. is itself a kind of pride in which you believe that you have all of the answers, you know it all, there's nothing else for you to learn because you, you know it all, right? Whereas humility evokes a kind of openness, you know, a kind of meekness, a, a kind of gentleness. Again, not wishy-washy, not selling the farm on, on important things, but an openness to the diversity of the world that, that God has created. And especially for all of us, you know, who live on this side of the veil, who see through a glass darkly, right? And there is a reason why the scriptures tell us to be humble. And, you know, a couple of the metaphors that I use in the book in terms of fundamentalism is, that, I mean, structural engineers, when they're building a really tall building, a skyscraper, they actually build in flexibility. I mean, several inches, actually, depending on how, how high the building is. So the wind, when the wind blows, the building can actually sway. I mean, there are still strong foundations of that building, right? They're not building on sand, but they build in the flexibility that it can move with the wind a little bit. Same thing. I mean, nature does this. I mean, look at a big tree, right? I mean, if, if a tree is too rigid, then when a big windstorm comes, it's going to fall down and maybe take other trees with it that actually trees bend in the wind, that is a source of strength, not weakness, for a tree to bend in the wind. And I think we can take some lessons from that. What are the things that we absolutely have to dig our roots deep so that we don't blow over, but also the, the kind of flexibility in our branches and at the tops of our trees that allow for diversity, that allow for different points of view, allow for the wind to take us a little bit not anywhere at once because we're planted in the ground, but to have enough flexibility actually to be healthy. And that's, it's a trick. There's no magic formula to that, but that's what fundamentalism resists. Fundamentalism resists any flexibility, wants to nail everything down because it's actually a form of insecurity. It's, it's, it's a form of weakness, whereas humility is a form of strength. Yeah. And it's interesting, especially in the context of this, uh, you know, restoration especially, you know, the church restoration, I would say, you know, the, the church of my father uh, in the in the 80s and 90s, if you were to ask, what's the point of Sunday school, the answer may be uh, to teach doctrine, right? And that seems, you know, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that, but that naturally produces a dynamic where there's right answers, there's wrong answers. And if you say the right thing and it's not doctrinal, then I have to correct it. And then, you know, because we have to teach doctrine here, where now I feel like it's through this restoration journey that we're all on in the church, it's more about, Sunday school is more about community and saying, yeah, we're going to talk doctrine, but primarily it's about community. And you may bring one thing up and I may disagree, but at the end of the day, we're united and we're all, we're both on this journey of trying to find Christ and the deeper meanings of his doctrines, right? But, and so it's just interesting to see how, how sometimes fundamentalism pushes back on that restoration journey that we're all on. Yeah, and, and I think it, this goes back to the beginning of our conversation. It's, you know, doctrine to what end? Yeah. You know, the doctrine has the same Latin root as, as doctor, right? I mean, so it points towards healing. I mean, that's, mm. that's what doctrine is supposed to do. And again, there are some doctrines that we will not budge on, right? We, we're, just, right. we're just not, right? I mean, if, if I'm teaching a gospel doctrine class and somebody gets up and says, you know what? I actually don't think that Jesus Christ is the Savior, Right. <laughs> Right. Um, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to say, you know, that's great. Let's run with that. And, you know, <laughs> but I do want to minister to the person. Right. Right. And I might say, hey, you know, that that's, thanks for sharing that. You know, let's talk about that after class. Right. Let's talk about your experiences and so forth. But 
you know, we are there in community in order to testify that Jesus is the Savior, right? I mm-hmm. mean, there are certain certain bedrock principles, but most of what we're talking about is is not that, exactly. right? And Fundamentalism is usually not, that's not where the, the give, the rigidity no, really yeah, breaks. Yeah, ex- exactly. Right? The, yeah. the rigidity is, is at a, a much different place. You know, I mean, it's, it's arguing over small stakes stuff usually. Yeah. And so, again, the, if we keep our focus on the individuals, right, what is the purpose of, of church? It's, it's to prepare people to be disciples of Christ, right, and prepare the world for, for the second coming of Jesus. That then... That gives us a you know a, a very different view because it's it's person centered, right? It's focused on the individual, not protecting a certain set of ideas of what some general authorities said in general conference in 1938. Yeah, exactly. And I think with fundamentalism, half the battle is just understanding what it is, and then then you can recognize it and right. and then deal with it. Then, but cool, well, Patrick. Any any other point or concept I didn't hit on? You want to make sure we cover before we wrap up? No, this this has been great. I mean, for for me, it's just I think the takeaway, I, and I hope what people get from from the book and from this conversation is that this is a really exciting time to be a member of the church, right? And when the prophets and apostles talk about the ongoing restoration, like I'm all in. I mean, that is exciting to me, not to be part of a project that is done, right? And I'm and I'm just watching reruns <laughs> for for the rest of my life, but actually, I'm part of the process of creating it. And you're part of the process of creating it. And all of us are. And we're doing this under the direction of our Savior, of the, the Holy Spirit, of, of, of our leaders. And we're doing it together. And we're doing it out of a love for all of Heavenly Father's children, both the ones who are members of our church and the ones who aren't. And that's when you catch that kind of vision of what the restoration is all about, it's pretty exciting stuff. So, so it's just, I'm grateful for the opportunity to have pondered a little bit about restoration over the past year because it's made me more excited about what what God is doing in the world and more open, I hope, to what God is doing in the world. And that's a beautiful thing. That concludes my interview with Professor Patrick Mason. He's just so fun to talk to. I hope you enjoy these discussions as much as I do. And, uh, I would love to hear what main points jumped out to you. You can go to leadingsaints.org slash contact or go to the post of this episode on leadingsaints.org and you can leave a comment. I always review those comments and respond to them and, and I'd love to hear what stood out most to you. And maybe think about what leader could you share this with? Maybe drop it in an email or maybe a sibling, a brother, an uncle, a, a dad, a mom, what, whomever. Who could you send this episode to that would maybe spark a deeper conversation about some of these concepts? And definitely check out his book. It's available on Amazon and anywhere you find uh, church books. It'd be awesome read and it's a quick read and and you'll love it. So go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and let us know what stood out to you. And if there's any other authors or individuals who you think would be a good fit for the Leading Saints podcast. And remember, if you know someone who'd be a great fit for the How I Lead segment, go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and submit your suggestion. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, 
we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.